in his short work, Man and Technics. Oswald Spengler predicted that the conquest of the earth by technology would not be stopped by the Luddite revolution, Butlerian jihad, or environmental catastrophe, but would grind to a halt as the human beings who design and run the machines simply lost interest in maintaining them. Dismayed by the results of victory in their long war against nature, men would simply fold up their schematics, lay down their tools, and retreat to a simpler life as the West European American civilization sought peace and quiet in which to run out its final days. Media and tech theorist James Poulos does not share the old German's optimism. Spengler could not have foreseen the disaster about which Poulos writes in his new book, Human Forever, The Digital Politics of Spiritual War. French philosopher Paul Virilio, upon whose work Poulos draws to precise and powerful effect, observed that every new technology brings into the world with it a new disaster. To invent the ship is to invent the shipwreck. The invention of the powered machine inaugurated an era of man-made disasters of mythical scale. From the Titanic to the Bhopal chemical disaster, the inventions of man trapped and turned on him with wrath previously reserved for the gods. And yet, for all their sublime destructive power, the catastrophes of the industrial age remained localized. They were something we might avoid, or at least run away from, like a tornado or a giant lizard attacking the city. It was only at Chernobyl that we began to glimpse the world-encompassing potential of technological catastrophe, but already by then had the heralds announced the birth of a new technics, and with it, a new disaster. And there is no hiding from the disaster of the digital age. Virilio coined the term integral accident to describe disasters that cause unpredictable cascading failures as a result of having made ourselves dependent on the smooth operation of systems whose complexity has outrun our analytical capabilities. He told an interviewer, the industrial accident is still the kind of event that takes place. The post-industrial accident, on the other hand, goes beyond a certain place. You might say that it does no longer take place, but becomes an environment. From the accumulating cloud of satellites and space debris orbiting above to the fiber optic networks running through ground and sea below, technology no longer refers to a tool or technique, but to the very environment in which we live, breathe, and have our being. When the 2010 explosion aboard the Deepwater Horizon drilling rig created a kind of artificial volcano in the Gulf of Mexico, many experts predicted long-term biospheric damage on a previously unimagined scale. Newspapers ran op-eds suggesting that an atomic bomb be detonated at the site of the leak to cauterize the wound. But while the damage was extensive, it did not kill the Gulf, as one energy industry expert predicted to an interviewer. Digital technology, it turned out, had provided mankind with tremendous power to address disasters of the industrial age. I remember the feeling of witnessing something momentous when I watched the 24-7 live stream from the camera installed near the site of the leak, millions of people from all over the world watched daily, in real time, as robots, remotely controlled from the surface, worked a mile beneath the waves to stop the flow of oil. The robotics and communications technology that made this possible were not the product of a lone genius or garage tinkerer, but of the combined effort over many years of research, corporate, and governmental institutions 
It was as if mankind itself, taking another step toward being a true singular noun, was watching as one, working through vast collective institutions, guiding its instruments to perform surgery on the earth. It is at least conceivable that artificial intelligence and machine learning, by their power to predict, analyze, and control, may one day render plane crashes, nuclear accidents, and car wrecks all but a memory. One can imagine, at least imagine, a world of driverless cars where each vehicle is in communication with every other, linking the traffic of whole cities into a gigantic network overseen by an artificial intelligence that controls and redirects the flow for optimal efficiency and safety. But what disaster was clutching at its heel when this technology was born? Virilio describes the 9-11 attacks, Hurricane Katrina, and the Deepwater Horizon oil spill as examples of how modern telecommunications technology has turned every disaster into a global disaster. Compare the discovery, years into the American occupation of Afghanistan, that many Afghans had never heard of the World Trade Center, to the suburban housewife using the Citizen app to track every major and minor crime in her city. Everything goes into the database or content stream and becomes available to witness. The same technology used to suture the Gulf of Mexico is used to remotely vaporize an aid worker in his car in Kabul. Artificial intelligence that might end our traffic problems will be used to monitor and control the movements of the Uyghur population of Xinjiang. The digital disaster that Poulos describes exceeds even Virilio's vision. For the scene of this accident, is not the power plant or the shipping lane, but the human mind and soul. A disaster that has become an environment is more difficult to draw in clean lines than the one that merely takes place, and is even more difficult to see from the inside. Words and images fail us, and when we try to express our digital age fears, we invariably resort to an industrial age idiom. In the Terminator films, for example, a rogue artificial intelligence bent on destroying mankind uses industrial age tools and processes, mass production, robotics, to rub us out one by one. Pop culture techno nightmares speak to our terror of being deselected by our own superhuman creations, but the result is rarely more than a chromed update of Mary Shelley. With the advent of the powered machine, Western man began to entertain wild dreams, unimagined by any creature that preceded him. His reverie gained momentum with each conquest, and he allowed himself to imagine that it was his destiny to overcome all of mankind's ancient enemies. Philosophers declared that the process of evolution had at last become conscious of itself. The universe would no longer be ordered solely according to physical, chemical, and biological laws, but increasingly by conscious intention guided by human reason. The great antinomies of human life, good and evil, desire and scarcity, authority and freedom, were no longer to be thought of as fundamental figures of the human condition, but as technical problems whose solutions were now within reach. These grand dreams, every one of them, turned into nightmares in the 20th century. Attempts to consciously order human economy led to Kolima, human biology to Auschwitz. Man was briefly chastened, and some said this chastening marked the end of history. Putting his money where his mouth was, the century's greatest interpreter of Hegel, Alexander Kozhev, announced that philosophy had come to an end, and henceforth addressed himself to the modest, 
but achievable task of shaping trade policy in the European economic community. The fall of the Berlin Wall was taken as proof that all barriers were illegitimate, and worse, irrational. The tech-savvy hippies of Silicon Valley read Ayn Rand and Stuart Brand, and believed their creation embodied the same homeostatic principle of emergent order that formed the basis of laissez-faire economics and balance of nature ecological theory. Of course, the end of the Cold War did not really mark the end of anything, let alone history and, as it turns out, not even of the Cold War. Out of the acid dreams of a handful of brilliant Californians had emerged a technology so powerful that, as Poulos writes, it now rules the world. But the shape of the new regime had not been foreseen by Rand or Brand, but by William S. Burroughs in 1958, one year before the U.S. Patent Office blessed the first microchip. There would be no more Hitlers, no more Stalins, wrote Burroughs, in place of the iron-willed dictator would rise rulers by accident, elevated by random pressures to wield absolute power over a vast machine they cannot understand, calling in experts to tell them which buttons to push. Man had created a technology powerful enough to program the world, forgetting that man is part of the world. By the time the engineers, some of them, realized their mistake, the catastrophe had been unleashed. The home, the classroom, and the schoolyard had already surrendered their vital role, and with it their authority, to opaque algorithms and aggressive bot swarms. Poulos reminds us of the McLuhanite dictum that we shape our tools, then our tools shape us. But Marshall McLuhan had in mind people still largely grounded in the real world, no matter how much time they spent in front of the television. The deeper intimacy of the smartphone blurs the line between our own thoughts and the content we consume. Members of each successive generation invest more of their identity online, subjecting a greater part of themselves to a realm where the bot's influence is absolute. This realization set off a scramble by our ruling factions to catechize the bots into their own Gnostic religion, even as their own incompetence in the digital age undermine their ability to enforce norms or compel loyalty. Under digital conditions, Poulos writes, the world structurally resists uniformity and unity. Digitized America retains the fundamentals of its civilizational character, including the most important, pluralism. For this reason, the attempt to build the universal state using digital technology is bound to fail. The concern, as always, is whether our ruling factions will go out with a bang or a whimper. The rulers of this and every other country equate their inability to control events with a state of emergency, so there is cause for real worry when they stake everything on an impossible task. Alas, there will be no Oval Office address, no official declaration of national emergency in the wake of the digital disaster. The challenge of remaining human in the post-disaster world is one we must face without support from industrial age institutions, which have been incorporated into territory already conquered by the cyborgs and digital swarms. But that does not mean we must face it alone. Poulos refuses to lie to the reader or to peddle false hope, but nevertheless manages to leave one with a firm certainty that it is humanity's war to win, if only we show up to fight. He's taken up the great task of Generation X by telling of the digital apocalypse his generation has straddled. More than that, he has written a survival manual for last men who refuse to go down without a fight.
That is the first draft of my review of the book by my friend James Poulos called Human Forever, The Digital Politics of Spiritual War, a review which will run in the Claremont Review of Books this summer. I've already done two episodes so far exploring some of the ideas the book touched off for me. It is a deep and complex book, and this will be a series that continues as different layers of it unfold for me. But for now, I thought it was time to just speak to the man himself. I hope you enjoy this discussion. If you do, uh, please consider becoming a paid subscriber to the Martyr Made Substack at martyrmade.substack.com. I have been getting a handle on my work schedule and have been keeping a pace of about one episode a week recently. It is just $5 a month or $50 a year, and you will find exclusive podcasts like this one and my recent discussion with former UFC heavyweight champion Josh Barnett, as well as episodes with just me exploring questions and issues that don't quite make it into the Martyr Made History show. You guys are the only way I can do this without starving. So for those of you who already support the podcast, you have my very real gratitude. Those of you who are thinking about supporting the podcast, please do so. And those of you who can't swing it, I hope you enjoy this episode anyway. Here we go. I'm content to die for my beliefs. So cut off my head and make me a martyr. The people will always remember it. All right. Hello, everybody. I am here with my friend James Poulos. He is the author of the book that I have done two episodes on so far and that many of you have asked for more content on. So I figured I'd better go right to the source and just talk to the man himself. The book is Human Forever, The Digital Politics of Spiritual War. And so, uh, James, I thought a lot about how to start this podcast and how to, how to structure the discussion. And I thought that maybe the best place to start, maybe this is a little bit of a cop out, but I, I do think it's a good place to start is just with the title and specifically the subtitle, the digital politics of spiritual war. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I mean, one of the things that, that comes through very quickly when you read the book is that you're a man who chooses his words carefully. And I assume that's even more true when you're talking about something like the title. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, sure. And, you know, it's, it's really great to be with you. Um, I'm glad that people care. Uh, they should care. This is, uh, this is what is moving the world right now and us along with it. Uh, and, uh, and the goal is not to get moved out of our, out of our identity, not out of our humanity. Um, I should say uh, when it comes to uh, when the title um comes together in your mind as an author. Uh, and sometimes the subtitles these days are even more important. You know, people, people always want the sort of like uh, Mad Libs subtitle, how blank can blank your blank. And, uh, and I had to resist that, but I wanted to give them something that, that made some sense. Um, 
Stuart Brand, uh, one of the big gurus coming out of the, uh, the hippie era, um, and one of the first of the hippies to understand that, um, the development of digital technology, uh, offered a kind of frontier of consciousness that, um, that obsolesced or superseded, uh, the, the frontiers opened by something like LSD. Um, his catchphrase, uh, at the time was we are as gods and we had better get, uh, get good at it or get used to it. Um, a lot of those, uh, those sort of frontier hippies who made the jump into tech, you know, their thinking was, well, you know, when you drop acid, you have one solo trip, um, expanding the frontiers of your consciousness and, uh, and it's illegal now, uh, as it, as it quickly was, um, but with digital technology, uh, you can connect together um, an open-ended number of people and put them all on the same trip. And not only is it legal, but it is being mass-produced and uh, developed uh, in a completely unbounded way uh, by uh, the government, specifically the military intelligence complex. So not only is it, uh, is it not illegal, uh, but it is... Um, it is the future of governance, of social organization. Uh, and it's an opportunity for, uh, for people who are seeking uh, the next big trip to flow into that space. Um, and so, curiously, you had a situation where the, uh, the establishment and the counterculture met on the field of digital technology uh, two groups who were supposed to be at odds. Um, but increasingly, uh, each group desired um, an extension of its capabilities um, and its consciousness uh, through the development and exploitation of uh, really weapons technology, uh, military technology. Um, the, uh, the counterculture was more inclined to, uh, use those weapons, uh, to sort of beat them into, to plowshares, but not really plowshares, but, but forms of entertainment. Um, and also curiously, uh, the establishment discovered that it was actually, uh, quite, quite friendly to the transformation of these technologies into forms of entertainment. Um, so a consensus suddenly emerged, uh, and the consensus was, uh, the establishment would write itself blank checks to push the advancement of, uh, of technological weapons as far and as fast as it could go. And the counterculture would receive, um, as sort of, you know, their, their, their end of the deal, uh, basically a blank cultural check. Uh, permission to repurpose these technologies um, in as creative and profitable of ways as they could. Um, and that gives you uh, America, the, the hyperpower, um, America, the indispensable nation. Um, the, uh, the expectation was that uh, digital technology would in this sense be um, a progressive development 
of the previous uh, medium, the previous uh, communications technology that had ruled the world. And that was the televisual tech, uh, the cinema, television, uh, the camcorder. Um, these were the things that uh, America used to assert its dominance over the world um, very effectively. Uh, and those technologies, the televisual technologies, were ones that uh, enhanced uh, or brought forward um, the human faculty of the imagination. So whether it's John Lennon singing Imagine or Willy Wonka singing Pure Imagination, um, whether it's uh, George Lucas's Industrial Light and Magic or uh, Walt Disney's Imagineers, um, the idea was uh, very clearly that whoever could dream the biggest and best dreams deserved to rule the world. Uh, and so they did. Um, that was Hollywood. That was how America won hearts and minds. Uh, that was how America converted people around the world into more of a pro-American disposition. Um, and how, in a sense, America was able to wage the Cold War without uh, using nukes, without uh, firing missiles, um, using information and media, uh, whether you want to call it propaganda in a pejorative way or not, um, to fight for the consciousness of billions of people, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, um, without any of the nastiness of global thermonuclear war or soldiers dying in the field. Uh, so the expectation was, um, well, you know, we're going to continue to develop technology and sure this stuff works a little bit different than TV computers. And, and you know, it's, it's all about machines and their power of memory instead of humans and the power of imagination. Um, but the expectation was that the, uh, the alliance between the establishment and the counterculture, um, using weapons technology to unite the a world consciousness in an imaginative way. Uh, that's not exactly what happened. Uh, the internet was developed, the smartphone appeared. Uh, you know, these weren't just sort of like visionary geeks in their garage tinkering their way to, uh, to world domination. Uh, the age of tinkerers came and went. Um, guys like Steve Jobs, you know, they saw the opportunity to take this military tech and to reskin it uh, in a way that seemed to be cool and imaginative and to blow open the doors of creativity and the doors of consciousness to think different, if you will. Um, but what, what ended up happening was uh, Donald Trump got elected. Uh, and suddenly you had, um, you had a shock ripple through uh, both the establishment and the counterculture uh, who had come together to form, you know, something that sometimes is called neoliberalism, sometimes it's called the blob, sometimes it's called the Borg, um, uh, sometimes it's called the deep state. Uh, you had large number of big tech companies uh, that were, in essence, arms of the, the military intelligence complex, uh, whether something a little more obvious like Amazon Web Services, which, you know, doesn't just host uh, Netflix, but also hosts CIA and MI6 and lots of others, um, uh, or whether it's, uh, you know, something like Google. Uh, the, the, the line between Google and NSA is very fuzzy. Some might say non-existent. Uh, the line between NSA and GCHQ, the, the British uh, version of the NSA, um, is also uh, non-existent. These two entities are one. 
so the, the boundary between Five Eyes and Big Tech is basically porous. Um, the, the counterculture had uh, basically taken over the establishment in terms of its, its mores and its, um, you know, what, it, what it idolized, what it pursued. Um, and uh, the election of Donald Trump seemed uh, to these folks to be an existential threat. Uh, whether it was or not. Um, and so a, a process began where, uh, where the, um, the countercultural establishment, the regime started to claw back these technologies. How could the robots have uh, betrayed us? How could they not have uh, done what we wanted? Um, we need to suddenly reestablish our sovereignty on digital ground. Uh, and so for many Americans who, you know, have not been sort of sitting around reflecting on the development of uh, digital technology since uh, the advent of the iPhone, but well prior to that, too, um, it became increasingly clear uh, during the Trump years and on into these years that, uh, that there is a sort of cold civil war going on in America, where uh, just as the U.S. used to fight uh, the Cold War bloodlessly using uh, communications technology using media, so too are Americans fighting amongst themselves uh, in two big teams, um, bloodlessly, largely, uh, using those very same uh, communications technologies, using those very same military technologies converted into forms of entertainment. So it's really what Marshall McLuhan warned that it was. Uh, uh, he said World War III will be a, a global guerrilla war uh, where the, the, the difference or the distinction between uh, civilian and combatant uh, blurs away completely. Um, and so when you think about the fact that this conflict is being played out on digital ground, when you think about the fact that it's not just the US, it's every uh, uh, regime, every country large enough and significant enough of a digital player uh, scrambling to reestablish its sovereignty uh, in a way that will keep it around in the digital age. Uh, then it becomes clear that, you know, what, what we're facing is a comprehensive uh, 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 digital political conflict. Um, and you have to ask yourself, you know, what is it at root that's animating this, this conflict? Is it simply a hunger for power? Uh, is it fear? Is it um, uh, a, uh, a conviction that really there's, you know, there might be other important things, but nothing's as important to this? Well, yes, to a degree, all those things are so. Uh, but I think above all, um, what you discover is that it is a spiritual war, um, and it's a spiritual war in the following sense. Um, televisual technology, you know, there's a lot of talk about the boob tube, about how people just sit in front of their TV sets and become zombies. Uh, you know, Thomas, Thomas Pynchon referred, referred to them at the end of, of his novel Vineland in, I think, in his 90 or 91 that it came out as tube freaks. Uh, people who are basically sitting around as if they're in a, a retirement home, just obsessively binging on television. And that's definitely true. But it was, it was genuinely thought to, and I think it genuinely did, uh, sort of unleash a certain kind of, of creativity, uh, sometimes very schizoid, sometimes borderline insane, uh, sometimes, you know, very, very bad for you, uh, mentally and spiritually. <laughs> Um, but when digital technology, when it became clear that, that digital had really taken over the world, uh, whether you're thinking in terms of someone like, you know, Mark and Jason saying software ate the world, uh, or just looking around, I mean, we've finally created machines that are, uh, more capable of conquering, uh, our planet 
than any person or any group of people, no matter how uh, ethical they are or no matter how good of engineers they are, no matter how high ranking they are in the counterculture or how high ranking they are in the establishment. And so in a world where, you know, it's not any one person or group of people, it's not any faction that, that has won. It is the machines that have won already. Uh, that puts people, um, elites, as well as ordinary folks, in a position where uh, there's an awesome overarching new presence from which we cannot escape. And that presence raises fundamental questions. It drags them back from the, the depths of, of the ages. Uh, questions about, well, where does this end? I mean, you know, why should we even bother being human? Why have kids? Uh, why have jobs? Uh, why date? Why have sex? Uh, why do anything? Um, why shouldn't we just look at our humanity as a curse, as bad news, as something that needs to be destroyed or shaken off, something which is holding us back, keeping us at the level of, of slaves? How will we ever regain uh, self-respect, how will we ever regain um, that feeling of boundless imagination that we had until so very recently? That, the, re the, the reappearance of an old heresy, huh? Well, how do we get it? How do we get it back? Um, and uh, and for growing numbers of people, the answer is well, we have to we have to escape our humanity. <clears throat> um, our humanity is a liability. It's disgusting. It's ugly. It's a curse. Um, and you can see this instinct everywhere from those who think, you know, that that the answer is uh, is to use technology to sort of blast off into uh, into outer space or uh, you know cryogenically freeze us until uh, we become super powerful or extend our lifespan uh, in in an infinite way uh, to people who um, are using technology not to magically transform from a man into a woman or vice versa. Uh, but to transform from a human being into a cyborg. I mean, that's what these these interventions uh, are. And I think for that reason, it's not surprising at all to see that the word trans, uh, this sort of floating prefix, has become a term of its own, uh, one that everyone seems increasingly to understand, has less and less to do with sex or gender, and has a lot more to do um, with transhumanism and with uh, the, the desire to, you know, if you can't beat them, join them, um, which is which is a, a question of the spirit. It's a fundamental question of who we are and who we might be um, if and when it were ever to become possible to exit our humanity. Uh, and I don't think it's, you know, there's any doubt um, where people want to go is they want to they invent and use machines that turn us into gods, uh, that liberate our consciousness from the curse of our incarnate and soul bodies that we did not create for ourselves. Um, and that's what it means today, uh, Stuart Brand's uh, little quip um, that we, we are as gods and we better get, get good at it. Uh, what I say to that in response is we are stuck being humans and we better get good at that. Um, because if we're not, uh, then we're going to continue to do what we've already done, uh, which is create weapons, uh, create automated monsters, automated forms of violence uh, that we do not understand. Um, and that we will not be able to use well or use wisely, um, not to preserve our humanity as it is, uh, and not not in uh, accordance with any transformative project either. Um, it's not going to work, uh, and there will be pain. 
Um, and so, you know, there's the subtitle for you. And then, you know, the title is, you know, we, we are human forever. It's not, we're not, it's, it's not infinity that we should seek. Um, it is uh, our, our eternity that we should remember uh, that, uh, that our, our bodies and souls, um, our human identity, these things are sacred gifts. Um, and they're, they're gifts that we cannot give back, uh, not without ushering in a kind of uh, uh, destruction and derangement, uh, unlike anything that we've ever known. Um, some of that brings to mind uh, a line from Ernest Becker's book, Denial of Death, where he refer he says that one of the central human problems is that we're gods who shit. You know, we are, we, we feel ourselves on some level to be this sort of ethereal consciousness, this untouchable, just non-physical, call it spirit, but really just call it mind consciousness that we feel ourselves to be. But no matter what, you can be Einstein contemplating, uh, you know, the relativity theorem. And when your body decides it's time to take a shit, it's time to take a shit, period. And so we're, we have this idealized vision of ourselves that constantly is uh, bombarded or hampered or dragged down by the physical requirements of being human in the world. And that that, you know, he said this, he, he traced this back in a way that I think you probably would too, all the way back to the Gnostic heresies, and, uh, you know, he only wrote this book in the early 1970s, but I think, you know, he, he would have obviously pointed to the transhumanism stuff today too, trying to liberate ourselves from the flesh entirely. You know, incidentally, I was, uh, I've been reading a lot of stuff about mass shooters lately, because I'm working on a podcast about that topic, just because of what's been happening recently. And I went through and reread the diaries of Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, the Columbine killers. And one of the things that really jumped out to me, the point that I put it in my notes here, is that literally every single time either of those two kids uses the word humanity in those journals, they're using it to refer to what's wrong with us and what's, or what's wrong with them. You know, it's like, uh, you know, I want to, uh, for example, like, um, you know, like Dylan Klebold expresses shame about watching porn and masturbating to porn. And he says, I don't want to do this stuff, but my humanity you know, requires it of me, basically, that like that kind of thing. And every instance of using the word humanity has a negative connotation to it for them. And yeah, that's something that, you know, I, I think that, 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 you know, maybe we, it, it comes in waves, right? Like it's a heresy that gets suppressed for a while or that people lose faith in because it causes the disasters that it causes. You know, the early 20th century was a version of that, I think. But every time a new technological, new major technological breakthrough comes along, we start to think, well, you know, maybe this time, maybe this time we can we can actually make it work. Right. Well, I mean, I think that um, these things that you mention are are inescapable as well uh, for all the good news that it is to be human. Uh, there's a cost, um, there's a predicament, um, at least, uh, by default, um, as we are in a, a spiritual war and the, the worth of ourselves and our being hangs in the balance, it is only to be expected that, uh, religion should become much more important, uh, to, people's consciousness and to people's way of life. 
um, it would not be shocking at all to see large numbers of people move away from the uh, the TV era um, injunction to save the world uh, toward a new digital era injunction to save my soul. Um, if you look around the world at the major digital powers, uh, what you discover is that they're all sort of syncing up on the recognition that the only way that they can reestablish their sovereignty on digital ground is theologically. Uh, you have the Chinese um, basically catechizing their bots into Taoism. Uh, they've been worried about their people being too amoral for a long time. Uh, China, you know, has a, a history which weighs on the minds of the Chinese leadership uh, of periods of really chaotic and violent collapse. Um, and the Chinese for a long time and, you know, as far as it goes with fairly good reason, have been paranoid about the influence of the Western imagination. They see it as a force of chaos and disruption that brings disorder wherever order is to be found. Uh, their cosmology is really the, the inverse of ours insofar as, uh, you know, we have a cosmology of disorder flowing from order and they have one of, of order flowing from disorder. Uh, and so their, you know, their rush to create this social credit system, um, it's not really a secular project. I don't think it can be understood that way at all. I think it is a, um, a full bore effort. Uh, to create um, a spiritually Chinese uh, digital life um, that restores uh, to technology a kind of harmony and balance of the sort that they've always sought to establish, at least theologically, between uh, human life on Earth and, and the cosmos, the heavens. Um, and there, you know, I'm not making this up. There are some of the best Chinese intellectuals who are published in English are talking about this and are saying, you know, the West is in trouble because you have this kind of uh, inherently broken understanding of the relationship between man and the cosmos and man and his tools. And your idea of techne has basically uh, created a monster over the, the millennia and that the Chinese have a better way. Uh, and I think you got to understand, you know, what is still being described as Chinese communism in this way. Uh, you know, it's not Western communism. Uh, it's, it's their own version. Um, and they're racing to get it done before it's too late. You look at the Russians, their response to uh, to the, the the sort of apocalyptic unveiling of digital mastery over the world was to build an, an enormous and very futuristic looking um, new military cathedral outside of Moscow, the main cathedral of the armed forces, uh, which they promoted with a, a very high res uh, video full of swooping drone shots and a voiceover proclaiming a fundamentally new uh, and intimate relationship between the church and the army. Uh, between the weapons and the theology uh, that reflects an understanding that there is no way of, of controlling the use of, of weapons technology in the digital age except through theological modes of control. Can, and can, I, we've, can I ask yeah, yeah, you one ahead. question real quick? Um, just because, you know, this is something I was going to actually save till later, but it's, it, this, is, this is just the place for it. Um, you talked about how China looks at American ideology and thinks that it's chaos flowing from order. You know, there's a big argument on, uh, I guess, the new right, the dissident right, whatever you want to call it, the non-conservative ink right, about the role of America or 
maybe the enlightenment itself in bringing about a lot of the social pathologies and breakdowns that people like you and I would be concerned with. Um, one of the themes in your book, and I, I think you don't really get much into it until maybe two thirds of the way through or so, but it, it ends up seeming like one of the primary points that you that you build up and want to leave the reader with is that America is not the problem. And that in fact, in fact, America can and should be part of the solution. There's a similar theme about Christianity. You hear more and more people on the right. And this is a distressing trend, but uh, it's one that I have to confess. I find myself sometimes tempted by is that, you know, the jihadists might've been wrong about the morality of, blowing themselves up in a crowd of kindergartners. Uh, but they might've been onto something about America being the great Satan. There's a lot of people on the right in America these days who, uh, who are sympathetic to this line of thinking, who will say like what you just said, look, Russia's got a lot of problems. Sure. But the Russian government is spending public money to build Orthodox cathedrals. Well, our rulers seem to be trying to stamp out Christianity in the public sphere uh, if not stamp it out literally in places like Syria, where, again, Russia ends up defending the Christians of that country against our proxy jihadists. Uh, China has its problems, obviously, but China is not making its economic support in uh, East Africa contingent on those countries joining the new left sexual revolution. Um, so, you know, isn't there an argument, I guess what I'm asking, isn't there an argument that America is an ideological revolutionary state like Napoleonic France or the Soviet Union or maybe even Iran today. Uh, you know, I, I, I remember seeing headlines a couple of years ago about how we were flying the rainbow flag over our embassy in Saudi Arabia, of all places, and thinking that only a revolutionary state on the order of Napoleonic France or the Soviet Union, whose existence and internal legitimacy to some extent rested on their mission to export the revolution. Only a state like that could be capable of doing something that crazy. And so you hear some version of this from like the Catholic integralists or just other people kind of on the dissident right. And your book in some ways, one of the main themes of it seems to be a rebuttal to that point. Can, can you maybe go in that direction a little bit? Yeah, let me just, I'll pick up where I left off and move toward an answer to that question, because these things are, are tightly interrelated. So, you know, you look at China, you look at Russia, you look at how they're, they're clearly signaling, and especially after the Ukraine stuff got started now more than ever, strongly signaling that, uh, that they consider themselves to be offering a fundamentally different theological alternative to the establishment of, of sovereignty, you know, of peace and order in uh, in the digital age. And so a lot of Americans or Westerners look at this and they go, oh, theocracy, that's stuff that the bad autocracies do. We don't do that. Uh, well, look closer. Let's let's continue to move west and just keep keep running down the list here. Um, the Vatican is very interested in playing a foundational role in the reestablishment of European sovereignty on a digital footing. Um, there are a lot of smart guys running around in there. Um, you know, I'm coming at things from, from a, a, an Orthodox theological standpoint, but I've got lots of, you know, very serious Catholic friends, some of them even integralists. Uh, and, you know, there's still some Protestant theologians out there and political theologists, and they're very serious too. I've trained by some of them in grad school. Um, and so I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm taking uh, a, a synoptic view here because the U.S. has always had a salutary uh, pluralism to it. 
And regardless of what's going to unfold in the next generation or two, I don't think there's any escape from America being, in essence, a Protestant nation, uh, or at least one that has uh, that is dominated and formed by fundamentally Protestant patterns of thought. So we'll loop back to that in a second. But you got the Vatican um, and the EU, you know, is full of folks who are also working on uh, uh, AI ethics things of that nature, a much tighter regulatory environment than what is in the U.S. Um, some of them insist that they're just good secular liberals, but I think by now the truth is clear. I mean, you talk about the rainbow flag. That flag has been colonized. You know, you see the vector of these extra stripes flying in, and you're like, well, wait a minute, how did these move to the top of the stack? Well, it's, you know, it's because they're transhumans, and that's why they're there. Um, Flags are important. Flags are symbols of the of you know what what's going on in the soul of the people who fly them. Uh, and uh, I would you know I would argue, and I don't think I'm alone in this, that uh, a lot of what's going on still under the the pretense of secular liberalism or progressivism is in fact the creation of a new religion, a, a gnostic cyborg theocracy. Um, and uh, and Europe is is hard at work on that. I, it's, but there's conflict. There's always been religious conflict in the West. Um, and it's, religious war is really the Western way of war in certain respect. Uh, and so it's not surprising to see. I mean, you look at a place like France. The civil war, the spiritual civil war, is is raging in France right now. Uh, you look at what's going on and say, like uh, you know, uh, uh, Estonia versus Hungary. There are serious divides here. Uh, and the UK is, is not immune to those either. There's, you know, the civil wars raging in the UK as well. Although I think, you know, the, the conservatives are, are probably lost by and large at this point. Um, and of course, that brings us to the US. Um, we've got the digital civil war playing out. Uh, we've got uh, real theological disagreements, uh, not just, you know, sort of new ferment on the right. Uh, but it's clear that, that the regime in this country has latched onto wokeness so that it can establish a new uh, official religion, which they can use to base their own social credit system on, uh, along with the central bank digital currency to run it. Uh, I'm sure they'd like to just absorb all of the blockchain into that process. Uh, and this is unconstitutional, but it's what they're doing. Uh, and uh, it's all too easy to say, oh, no, this isn't the establishment of religion. Uh, th these are just our core values. Uh, you know, this is just like-minded people uh, doing the, the people's business of governance. Uh, but I think the people understand uh, the truth. And so when you look at, you know, these these artifacts that you mentioned earlier, where it's whether school shooters or other people saying, you know, humanity is a curse, we are disgusting. Um, and really the ultimate hallmark of uh, our disgust, our hatred of ourselves, our nihilism, um, is our hatred of our mortality. Uh, when people try to respond um, under these conditions to the case against humanity by adopting, you know, the, the woke cyborg theology um, in an effort to, you know, to, to liberate the consciousness, to become as gods, to uh, turn the, the subject of the self into an object, uh, in order to escape uh, their hatred of our humanity, uh, warts and all. Um, it's done under this vision of sort of triumphing over death in a certain way, uh, triumphing over all the sin, um, all the stain of humanity. Uh, and, you know, and part of that project at the extremes is, are, are some people who are just like, yes, humanity needs to die. 
you know, uh, we're a scourge on this earth. All we do is pollute. We're, you know, just uh, uh, ugly bags of water, as one of the, the Star Trek villains once called uh, human beings. Uh, you know, horrible carbon, you know, it's, it's sort of molecular injustice. All this carbon needs to be gotten rid of. Um, for you say what you will about, about the Wokies um, and the cyborg theocrats, you know, they recognize that uh, without a religion, they will not be able to establish control over this country um, under these technological conditions. And so what do I say in response? I say, well, you know, fortunately I got good news. You know, let me, uh, let me share a little good news, which is that, uh, that we're, we're actually not mortal anymore. Christ trampled down death with death. Uh, and uh, at a time and place only of God the Father's choosing, uh, we will all be uh, bodily resurrected and judged. Uh, so, you know, don't worry, guys. Uh, don't worry about death anymore. Um, and some people laugh at that. And, you know, I have uh, I have a few friends or family members who, you know, well, if you just talk about religion all the time, you're really going to narrow your audience. And, uh, you know, look, I don't make the rules here. And uh, the reason why I'm talking about this and spending so much time on religion and, uh, and emphasizing the, um, the way that uh, a return to, uh, to a sound understanding of Christian theology is necessary to securing and preserving our way of life, our form of government and our humanity uh, is because, you know, I, I sort of, you know, I did my homework and, uh, and it, this is not my opinion. This is what's going on. You see it around the world. India, Israel, other democracies, you know, all moving toward um, a, uh, a, a refounding for digital times uh, that's ultimately rooted in a theology. There's no way to escape it. So the challenge for Americans is, well, you know, unless we're going to scrap the Constitution, which in some ways it's been scrapped for us already. But in other ways, you know, you don't really want to open that Pandora's box, I don't think. Um we uh, have to find an alternative to some form of theocracy in the U.S. Uh, and finding that form, finding that alternative uh, is going to be serious work. Um, it's true that uh, if you look at the legacy of the Enlightenment uh, as a whole, you see a lot of bad stuff. You see this idea that time is uh, linear and incremental and progressive and irreversible. Uh, which is just a, a, a mistake. That's not true. Um, and so you, it wasn't surprising to see that the trends toward the end of, of this, this, you know, pre-digital era move enlightenment minded people to the conclusion that like, well, it doesn't really matter if it's true. It just matters if we act as if it is true. And if we act as if it is true, then we can sort of create our own reality. Um, and you can see that in kind of the infamous Karl Rove quote from back when, where you know, he's talking to the journalist. And he's like, yes, you'll judiciously assess what it is that we've done. But, you know, we create our, our own reality and we'll move on to creating the next reality while you're still judiciously assessing the previous one that we created. Uh, but it's also just obviously the hallmark of technological development in the U.S., which has been driven for decades by the military intelligence complex, by these big R&D checks. You know, why are certain... Uh, certain firms uh, selected for um, in our ostensibly free market? Uh, why does the money flow where it does? Uh, and it flows because of this desire to, uh, to use technology uh, to postulate infinity, inf infinite development, infinite progress, infinite growth, um, and to reorder society along a, a basis where people are convinced or choose to believe the lie that eternity is gone and only infinity remains. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's undeniable that certain strains of Protestantism are implicated in the development of those kinds of uh, establishment um, postulates. 
now, does that mean that Protestantism, as you know, some of my my most trad pilled friends will will insist that Protestantism is paused, that Protestantism is broken? This, you know, this five hundred years of heresy is coming to an end. Well, I think it's a little more complicated than that, um, and this is why uh, the, the the Enlightenment was not just one thing, the Reformation was not just one thing. Two major trends with lots of of you know local or regional differences all unfolding simultaneously and uh, you know not not even the most powerful AI I think is able to separate these things out and make them perfectly intelligible explanation is not going to save us here um, understanding that you know life needs to breathe and the mystery of the implicit is very important and so you know my remarks here are going to reflect <laughs> that uh, you look at you know uh, Martin Luther you look at Germany, um, a, a culture of barbarians, overeducated barbarians, always trying to prove that they are capable of mastering the world. Uh, you know, you can picture someone trying to eat a, re a, a very nice dinner with a mace in one hand and a battle axe in the other. I mean, that's that's the German spirit. Uh, you know, the German spirit is uh, uh, the, the Reformation means um, the, the will must go into the desert in order to be purified. Um, you know, that's not the reformation for, for Calvin and his followers. Uh, then again, you know, Calvin put people in cages in Geneva and, and Calvin and others insisted that, uh, you know, some people are, are automatically going to, uh, to be seated at the right hand of God and other people are, are, are sort of pre- uh, chosen to to not do that. In fact, to have a quite different experience after they die. Um, and uh, you know, and Calvinism has had uh, an, a, a huge impact in some ways, but a very narrow impact in others. Uh, and probably one of the the largest uh, is through sort of Calvin adjacent people. Uh, I mean, I think Anglicanism is a is a, a world historical disaster. Uh, it started out as you know, oh, it's got all the benefits of Catholicism, but the king is also the pope. Uh, which, <laughs> you know, you look at how that develops and what it develops into is, well, the state, um, the state is God, uh, and, uh, and law is God. And you get a, a very Gnostic view of God, which is sort of a, a kind of twisted form of, of, uh, of Gentile Judaism where, I mean, you read a guy like David Galanter and he wrote a book called Americanism and he called it the fourth great Western religion. And what you read in there is he goes, you know, the really uh, sort of Americanism is this kind of kind of reboot or, or take off of uh, of Judaism uh, in which, you know, the the theological dispensation is one where we say, ah, you know, God keeps getting ever more distant as time goes on. Um, so the only thing there is left for us to do is to just find ways to get ever closer to God's law because God's law is still manifest in the universe. And so if we can become ever more, more devoted to mastering God's law, uh, then, you know, then, then our relationship with an, an ever more absent God is going to continue to morph and change. Uh, and you can just see how Anglicanism would be a vessel of understanding. I argue that that is exactly what has happened. Uh, and that the impact of sort of, uh, you know, British Hebraic Protestantism um, on uh, on the U.S. has been outsized and and bad for us. Uh, you can contrast this to someone like John Knox, uh, the the Scottish reformer. Uh, you know, Knox was on a much different trip from from the Anglicans, and not just because you know he didn't want to have a, a king who was also a pope. Uh, and although no one really talks about John Knox anymore, you know, Presbyterianism, I mean, Adam Smith was a Presbyterian. I don't think you can read Adam Smith without understanding that he was coming from a Presbyterian place. 
Uh, and Presbyterianism had a huge impact on America. Uh, and Episcopalians, who did not want to be fully Anglican pilled, you know, also had a huge impact on America. You had, you had Baptists and others. Um, and so when you look at American Protestantism uh, as such, I think, you know, it's, it is considerably different from uh, the Protestantism of uh, or the, the Anglos or the French. Um, and I think uh, American civilization uh, is a civilization which has much deeper um, and and more um, more enriched of a theological an independent theological tradition than is often given credit for. It's easy to make fun of the Baptists. It's easy to make fun of the Evangelicals. Uh, but but seriously, you know, just to take those two groups for for an example, whatever their flaws may be, theologically speaking, from a more of an apostolic traditional standpoint, uh, these are not the folks um, who uh, who fully embraced uh, over hundreds of years um, kind of the worst of the Enlightenment and the worst of the Reformation. Uh, and so, although, you know, I'm coming theologically from an Orthodox direction, that, that's, that's 1% of the, uh, of the U.S. population. Catholics have, you know, maybe, maybe 10, maybe 20 times that. Um, nevertheless, I think, you know, we got to accept that, uh, the U.S. isn't going to, uh, isn't going to have a, a good theocracy anytime soon. There's a chance of a bad theocracy. Uh, but the solution for us, you know, has got to be one where we find a kind of uh, novus vivendi here amongst uh, a number of, of, of uh, incommensurable groups. Uh, people want to be incommensurable at the end of the day. They don't want to be interoperable and our machines are interoperable. And it's driving us crazy because it makes us want to imitate our machines and feel like if we don't act like them, then we're never going to make it. Well, that's exactly the wrong approach. We need to recognize, we need to remember who we are uh, and we need to have the courage uh, to recognize that who we are is not supposed to be entertaining. It's not supposed to be fun. It's not supposed to be heaven on earth. Um, the path is to take up the cross. Uh, life is a trial and there will be suffering no matter how you, hard you run or try to escape it. Uh, and trying to escape the suffering of our humanity is only going to lead to our obliteration, not to our escape out of our humanity into some godlike state. I want to ask you a little bit more about one of the, I, I mean, you've brought it up already in this conversation. It's one of the the real important themes of the book and one of the ones that grabbed me the most, which was the implications of the cosmogony of this digital technology, specifically being uh, a baby from the uh, unlikely and, and, and maybe unholy marriage between the military industrial complex and the sixties counterculture. Um, there's kind of there, there's maybe a little bit of a of a debate people have, or maybe it's just that a lot of people have the view. A lot of the people who think about this stuff critically have the view that that the structure of the technology itself, like the very structure of digital technology, has these say values, but maybe that's not the word I'm looking for. Uh, but built into it. It's built into the structure of the technology, the incentives it creates, just et cetera. Um, do you think that that is the case or do you think that 
a large part of how this technology has developed and been put to use is the result of the fact that, as you said, it was developed in the context of the Cold War and that we still have, I think this is probably one of our, like, like a problem that we suffer from quite a bit, both geopolitically and domestically today, is that we still have a government that is built to fight the Cold War. And even though we live in a world where that makes no sense and really has no relevance, that's what the state is built for. And that's the way it still behaves. So, you know, in in a sort of current example, when we talk about uh, what's going on in Ukraine with Russia right now, you still hear like it's the free world versus the unfree world or, you know, that it just these these are terms that really don't have. These just don't make any sense in a context like that. Um, But those are the frames that we have because. We've got a government that was built to fight the Cold War. Uh, you know, so in the night, you, you look at like in the middle of the 1900s, as you get into like the 50s, when uh, the you know, Soviet propaganda is very effectively painting uh, the United States as this and the Western world in general as an alliance with the Japanese and the Germans and the Italians, that you look over at the United States and there's inequality of all kinds. You've got Jim Crow in the South and so forth, so that a lot of our domestic policies became geared toward doing information war against that uh, against that propaganda the Soviets were putting out. And it became even before the New Left came about in the you know in, in the in the mid to late '60s. You know, you had Eisenhower. And uh, desegregating the you know the schools in the South and so forth. This was like a considered a national security imperative to do these things. Um, and over over time, as we built out the institutions that were designed to fight that information war, they essentially swallowed up much of the rest of the government. And then uh, you know again, this technology was developed in that context, and this is the the use that this weaponized technology was was put to. And you come out of the Cold War environment where, you know, we've made progress on all of the low-hanging fruit that uh, was available to be picked as far as social justice causes and and things like that in the 60s and 70s. Um, But these institutions still have their momentum and they still have their mandates and imperatives. And so they just keep on rolling on. And and so... uh, do you think that that context is at the root of why this technology seems to be driving us in one direction only? Or do you think it's because the people who sort of caught on to uh, its, its significance and the fact that we are in a sort of spiritual war first happened to be uh, the counterculture and now the woke types? Um, or do you think it's just built into the technology itself? Uh, yes, all of the above. Um, obviously, what people think and do is, is very important, um, but uh, it's not just digital technology that sort of has a mind of its own in a certain sense. Uh, it is all media as such. Um, this is just straight out of McLuhan, um, who goes back to Aristotle. Um, Aristotle, for whom uh, he was perfectly comfortable and in fact um, insistent upon uh, as a sort of biologist first um, drawing the fundamental analytical distinction between that which is alive and that which is not and that which is alive has soul anima and that which is not does not 
Um, and so for Aristotle, you can't do political science, you can't do science science, um, if the foundation of your analysis is one that denies the primary fundamental duality between that which is alive and that which is not. Um, and so this is important for McLuhan because he says um, you can't understand media without understanding the way that its causes have effects on us. And the way to understand those causes is to understand Aristotle's formal cause. So Aristotle has a couple different um, kinds of cause that he describes. Uh, it's important for him uh, that they all happen at the same time. They are not linear. They're not sequential. You know, this is not um, uh, uh, modern rationalism here in its view of cause and effect. This is something that, you know, is much more analogical, um, something that, you know, uh, Catholic theologians um, can go on about for a long time as well they should. So, you know, the, the kind of causative effect that media has on us is not like, you know, the, the, the cue ball hitting the billiard ball. Um, it's not like, uh, it's not even like the seed becomes the tree, uh, nor is it like the, uh, the, the craftsman, the craftsman creates the blueprint and from the blueprint comes the table or whatever. Um, none of these forms of cause are what Aristotle has in mind when he talks about formal cause, a distinct and separate kind of causative uh, phenomenon. And so formal cause is really, you know, you can think of it as like environmental cause. Uh, the, the matter and the behavior of the matter, the actions of the matter um, are, are caused by the form uh, that shapes them. Um, so, you know, environment, we can use that very loosely. Environment's a pretty recent term. I think it might have been acquainted by Carlyle or somebody. Um, uh, so for Aristotle, the, the soul is the form of the body. Um, that if you want to understand what distinguishes living things from things that are not alive, uh, you have to understand that the form of what is alive is formed by the life force, the anima, the, the soul. Um, and so, uh, so McLuhan's point is... Um, uh, things that are not souls can have formative effects on things that are souls. And so we create these uh, media, we create these technologies, and they form a certain kind of environment. And those formed environments then form us kind of in their image. Uh, so just as, you know, televisual technology uh, really emphasized, um, of course, vision, the eye, uh, you know, radio emphasized the ear um, before there was writing or the alphabet. Uh, oral, uh, the, the oral medium was all that we had, you know, Homer and all that. Uh, and the last time that we had uh, a civilization um, formed by a medium where uh, the human faculty of memory was what was most enhanced was the scribal era in, in medieval times when, uh, you know, uh, monk after monk sat in scriptorium after scriptorium, writing down and recording and recalling uh, uh, scroll after scroll of the knowledge and wisdom of the world. Uh, now, instead of, you know, monasteries full of humans doing this activity, we have server farms full of digital entities uh, writing down and recording and recalling uh, everything, uh, not through the human faculty of memory, but through their own kind of memory, which is, you know, which is not identical to ours. And it's not, you can't even say that it's better than ours, uh, even though it has powers that ours uh, does not. Ours has powers uh, 
that it's is not. Um, and so the as, as important as it is and as influential as, as it is when human beings uh, form opinions about the technologies that they have created or that they use uh, and seek to uh, make instruments of those technologies in pursuit of their own ends. What is still more important than that is the formative effect of the technologies on, on us. And so you just look at the way that, you know, human beings are doing their best to imitate their bots. Uh, you got kids on TikTok who are not just identifying as one of the, uh, the infinite number of stripes on the, or should I say, pretend infinite number of stripes on the, the woke flag. Um, but who are identifying as members of a swarm. You know, I do not have an individual identity. I'm identifying as, you know, as, as members of some swarm of group, uh, affinity swarm or another. This is not surprising. Uh, it is not surprising that people under this pressure are, feel that they are at war with themselves. You know, they, they try to reject the incommensurability that is at our heart and, and in our soul in favor of, uh, of interoperability, which is the, uh, which is the, the way of life of the bots. Um, despite the fact that we all stare at screens and our phones have screens and everything, um, most people's interaction with digital technologies, the way in which they're formed by the, by these technologies, uh, they're being formed by things that are invisible that, you know, until, I don't know, 10, 10 years ago, approximately, um, the only entities that humanity was ever aware of and ever talked about that had the powers that our digital entities have were angels and demons. These things are, they, they appear to be infinite. They create an illusion of infinity. Uh, they are radically um, interoperable. Uh, the advent of 5G means that any connected device can communicate with any other uh, connected device with effectively zero latency. So we're talking about the transcendence of human spacetime by um, machines that are invisible. Uh, <laughs> and that, you know, that it is not a surprise under these conditions that so many people are losing their minds, losing touch with reality, losing touch with their humanity, and in fact, wanting to declare war against their humanity. Uh, so when they see someone who looks like a relic of the human age in all of its, uh, you know, muscularity and, um, and incommensurability, someone like a Vladimir Putin, you know, it's, it's, obvious why he becomes a scapegoat, you know, a, a target of a, of a, a, a cosmic jihad. Um, and any, you know, and anyone else who pops up on the internet and, and positions themselves or identifies themselves in a way that attracts that kind of attention or that kind of scapegoating uh, is going to face a similar treatment. And so, you know, that's, that's just one example, how at the heart of our patterns of behavior uh, in the sea, swimming around in the sea of these technologies, yeah, you know, people's agency is important and people's agendas are important, uh, but still more important is the the direct effects of these technologies themselves uh, on the way that our, our inner and outer lives play out. Everybody who listens to this podcast knows that I love Rene Girard. So, uh, you know, one of the one of the ways that I've described at least one aspect of the digital disaster that you described in the book is that we are very mimetic creatures. We're hyper-social mammals that respond in very subtle and overt ways to cues that we get from other people in, in our environment, right? And we learn uh, what to like and dislike. We learn what to desire. We, we just 
we learn how to behave and how to be human through imitation of other people. And that these forces, these influences work on us in profound ways, whether we want them to or not. And, uh, and, and that that's just how we're built. And that since we have moved more of our lives online and invested more of our identities into our online avatars, that we are subjecting ourselves to profound influences, not only by our peers or other people in our society, that we're not only having a mimetic reaction to other people around us, but having a mimetic reaction to uh, algorithms, to swarms of bots that, as you say, are, they, they, they don't have a soul. They're not human. They have uh, imperative. That's it. And maybe, maybe, maybe just as a natural result of the technology, or maybe uh, just a result of the fact that the technology happened to have been developed in a capitalist context, uh, the imperatives of the technologies are set up to uh, just single-mindedly drive engagement, basically. And the, the, the you know, shortest space, shortest uh, distance between two lines, if you're trying to create engagement, uh, is fear, is outrage, anger, um, all of these things that people talk about a lot. Uh, and so we've subjected ourselves to, uh, you know, like, like we human beings, we, we're, we might have certain resistances built in to negative mimesis, you know, whether it be our, uh, just our moral code, the way we were raised, whatever it is, but that's not really true of our online avatars and presences. Our, our online avatars are almost completely subject to, uh, the, the, the will, the willing of these bots and, uh, that that strikes me. I mean, you know, one of the things that you said when we were at the uh, at the Vegas event a while back, I've, I've mentioned this. I've told this story to probably ten or twenty people, and all of them were about as shook by it as I was. Is when you talked about being at that talk by David Petraeus, and you asked him the question, "What keeps him up at night?" and he said, "The internet thinks," and then he walked off stage. And I've thought about that ever since I heard you tell that story. And, you know, you, you just brought up like angels and demons with regard to these online entities. Um, do you, sometimes I think that that maybe is um, not something that is a figure of speech, you know, that we might be summoning uh, the Antichrist here or summoning, you know, really demonic entities that as they become more sophisticated and learn more about us, Sure, they might not have an inner life. They might not have an interiorized sort of sense of themselves, but uh, they could certainly develop uh, drives for self-preservation, expansion, certain what, what could maybe be described as like moral codes, you know, in their own sort of like maybe going obviously a very inhuman direction, but um, yeah, well, I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I should say in the interest of full disclosure um, that what Petraeus said was the Internet of Things. 
uh, rather than that the internet thinks. But it's interesting. Oh. It's interesting because, <laughs> well, because what's going on with the internet of things? And what I that misheard really means you, is that, and I have yeah, been thinking about that I ever know. since. <laughs> uh, but there's good news, which is, you know, what is what did that mean? What was he worried about? What he was worried about was the internet going into everything that we use, that there would be no tool that we have, no appliance, nothing um, that we fill up the world with that was not filled up with the internet. Um, So that every artifact in human life uh, was, um, was, uh, was connected, was engaged with every other um, artifact uh, and that they were all interoperable. Um, that is alarming, not just because it dwarfs our humanity in the world, although it does, uh, but because um, when you have that volume of entities all linked up together, um, what you have is a new kind of form uh, that we have only seen um, among uh, well, I mean, if you look at if you look at the the Greek word for swarm, you have esmos, and you know this is ancient Greek here we're talking about, and the Greeks would use this term to describe what you would expect, like a swarm of bees, uh, but they would also use it to describe like like a group of like very angry women like taking vengeance. Or they would use it to describe like the waters of a stream rushing down a hill. Um, it was one of those words that kind of had an abstract meaning that could be applied to uh, to things that had adopted a kind of an emergent identity more than the sum of its parts, um, acting in a way that was kind of inherent to it and not subject to the uh, the intentions or the will or the hopes of those around it. Uh, and so the form of digital technology is manifest as the form of the swarm, as the form of as most taken to its most abstract form. Uh, and the behavior of such a thing, which is not alive, yet behaves uh, in the same sort of manner, the closest thing that we can analogize it to is is, uh, a a swarm of living things. Although the Greeks would say, well, they don't have to be alive to be in a swarm. Um, It's very difficult for us to to even begin to to account to ourselves um, what this, this thing is without thinking about it as thinking. And not just as thinking, but as thinking in a way that we can't understand, that we can't really participate in, unless in some way we merge with it. And so, you know, when you consider, like, what is going on with Elon Musk, um, this is a guy who has clearly been pondering these matters, and he is embarked on a mission that wherever it's it's going to end up terminating or whatever it ends up culminating in, uh, it should call us to a profound and uh, a penitent contemplation of how, of what we must remember about ourselves in order to remain um, 
at home to any degree in the world to remain in a recognizably human space-time and not to be uh, you know, beamed up into a space-time of you know, an alien space-time, uh, one in which the rules, the, the laws of the cosmos, of existence, are laws that are indifferent at best to ourselves and our humanity. Um, you know, toward the end of the industrial age, 70s and 80s, you obviously digital technology was, you know, invented by that point. But I would say we were kind of in that transition period. We had, we started to have these pop culture nightmares, right? Technological nightmares that were sort of uh, expressions of our anxiety about technology. And some of them were pretty profound, maybe like 2001, I think was pretty good. Others um, were really, even though they were trying to be uh, narratives about the dangers of digital technology really ended up being about uh, industrial technology at the end of the day, right? Skynet might be a rogue AI and that's a digital problem, but at the end of the day, it's just mass manufacturing killer robots to go hunt us down one by one. That's kind of an industrial problem. When you talk about the internet of things, you know, I think about a world where, you know, like right now, these, these, these machines are getting extremely good at predicting our shopping habits and, you know, our news preferences and information preferences and so forth. But, you know, as we get to a time where everything that we have is connected to the internet, your refrigerator is connected to the internet, your couch is probably connected to the internet, because if there's zero latency, why not? You can figure it, figure it out that instead of just knowing our shopping preferences or being able to track our movements via GPS, it's going to know how long we sit on a couch for. It's going to know uh, whether we have good posture or not when we do it. It's going to be able to collect such a mountain, uh, just a galaxy of data about us and feed it into machines that are just increasingly self, self-learning and more sophisticated every day that, you know, I don't worry about uh, us ever giving the keys to Skynet, you know, the, the keys to our nuclear arsenal to Skynet or allowing some, you know, AI process to run the factories that manufacture our weapons or something like that. What I worry about is if Skynet uh, wants us to be destroyed, he'll just get it to do it. Skynet will just get us to do it ourselves, you know, um, where it knows so much about us that it can predict what we do. It understands us far better than we understand ourselves, and it can shape and manipulate our behavior in ways that will will reduce us to creatures that are acting according to its imperatives while, to, while, while doing it, a feeling like we're exercising our own agency. And once you get into that place, there's really no way out of it. You know, once it sort of colonizes your your will in that way, you know, it's going to be able to make sure that you never question the way things are. And uh, that seems to me actually, I don't think that's a a PKD sort of like sci-fi dystopia. Like, I think that that is a plausible uh, future. Yeah, well, I mean, look, you, what you say is disturbing and it becomes more disturbing when you realize that one of the things in the Internet of Things uh, is money. 
And if you think that, you know, Skynet or whatever you want to call it is um, capable of influencing our acts and our decisions and our wants and our will and our fortunes, um, just wait until the digital dollar comes along. Uh, it's already, I mean, whether it's a Davos or the SEC, I mean, the goal is to ensure that people only allocate their resources on what those allocations are optimized for by the regime. And that he who does not receive the mark can neither buy nor sell. Well, I mean, this is not, you know, this is not sci-fi. This is not a, a figment of the imagination. This is not, oh, what if something horrible happened? This is what has already happened. This is remember how we got here. Um, you talk about the Antichrist. I mean, you know, I think that someone like like Dugan is definitely barking up the wrong tree theologically when he starts talking about uh, a geopolitics of the end times. Um, it is not our business to uh, to try to create the end times, to accelerate the end times, to uh, to uh, decide the time and place of the end times. That is not even the business of Jesus Christ himself. And he said so quite pointedly to his disciples. Um, uh, and it is tempting for Christians to, um, to rebel against the otherwise unbearable tension of life in times like these. And to say, no, the cross is too heavy for me to bear. Bring on the apocalypse. Just end this now, you know, like, let's have the final battle now. That is a very strong temptation for human beings to want to shortcut to the end and to, uh, and to uh, reject supplementing their lives with the cross in favor of substituting the end times for the cross. Well, we're told not to do that by Jesus Christ, and I am inclined to not just take him at his word, but to understand why. And this is part of why. Uh, if you look at, you know, it's just, just go back to McLuhan. Uh, there's a deep-seated repugnance in the human breast to understanding the processes in which we are involved. That would entail far too much responsibility. Okay, so what's responsibility? Well, for, you know, go back 12,000 years or so, uh, and what you will discover is that the root meaning of responsibility, of uh, responsible, uh, it also shows up in the word sponsor, uh, is to repeatedly pour out sacrificial libations. Responsibility is a theological term. And taking responsibility means accounting for who it is that you're pouring out, who or what you're pouring out your sacrificial libations to, who you are sacrificing your soul to. Uh, and so no matter what our technology does, at the end of the day, um, we have no one to blame but ourselves. We cannot blame our machines. Uh, it is only we who can take responsibility. Our machines cannot take responsibility because they do not have souls, and they're not going to have souls, even if they are programmed to share our theology. Uh, and so the taking of responsibility must begin. Um, yeah, you know, a can-do attitude is great. And, you know, I'm not here to say that we should all go live in the woods. Uh, in fact, a lot of people are, are being bribed to do the equivalent of going off and living in the woods. A lot of good people, you know, oh, the, the tension is too unbearable. 
I don't want to spend my life just being a martyr. I don't want to carry the cross around every day. I want to just like cash out, live on the island. I want paradise. I want to go hide somewhere. I want to go sit on a mountaintop and become nothing. I want to sit around and watch a number go up. I mean, these are not Christianity. And, uh, and they're not Christianity because they reject the teachings of Christ. It's that simple. Um, and if you're rejecting the teachings of Christ and you are embracing something else as your savior, and you are trying to usher in, and your idea of salvation is the ushering in of the end times. If you are trying to create an end times machine in order to be saved from your humanity, then yes, that is anti-Christ. This is just logic, man. This is not, you know, you don't have to like refer to any esoteric tests, uh, texts or, or Gnostic gospels or, you know, read the corpus of, of Dugan or anything else. This is just thinking the problem through with common sense, which doesn't just mean good sense. It means, you know, what it, what it did in medieval times, census communis, you know, the Greeks and the Latins understood this, that there's a, a cogitative faculty um, in our uniquely human minds, uh, which are not, you know, floating consciousnesses, but are organically woven into our, our body and soul uh, that takes all of the, the five senses uh, and maybe some others like balance or whatever and, and, and synthesizes them uh, in a judgment forming way. Uh, and that is what we need. We don't need blue checks. We don't need PhDs. We don't need, um, to, to, you know, have the right stripe on the right flag. Uh, we are good enough right now. And if people, ordinary people recognize, look, this is why I did the book the, the way that I did. I put it on the blockchain. I put, put it up for sale in Bitcoin. Some people got, you know, butthurt. Oh, but James, this is too difficult. Well, why don't you try harder? Oh, well, that's inconvenient. Okay, well, you know, then you're not gonna you're not gonna want to read this book if you can't be bothered. I don't want to create a new Bitcoin wallet, James. Well, you know, then you're not gonna make it, my friend. If you can't even be bothered to create a new wallet in order to to get a thirty dollar book that might have something important that you need to know, then I this is where I say goodbye. So why did I do this? You know, not just to take sort of like lash out against people who are lazy or whatever. Um, it's because the medium really was the message, you know, take one step in a risky direction, dare to humble yourself a little bit and have a little bit of beginner's mind, because guess what? If you do, then you'll discover you don't need to be some member of an elect. You don't need to be a member of a secret society. You don't need to be in like the, the signal chat that you don't know about, but you know, everyone else is in. No, you have what you need right now. If your head is screwed on straight, if you're not mentally ill, if you haven't been you know, absorbed into the, the queer transborg uh, to use one of the most powerful digital technologies we have, Bitcoin, and use it to create valuable, memorable, uh, soulful culture and put it um, into action, commanding, compute to do things that will protect instead of destroy our way of life, our form of government and our humanity. And through that activity, you can create algorithmic markets that work to the benefit and the flourishing of your people. And if enough of us do this, there's nothing standing in the way. If enough of us do this, then we will be able to take and claim the sovereignty that we remember we once had and reestablish it on digital ground without having to create a cyborg theocracy without having to become anyone's stooge or puppet 
without having to go to, you know, uh, uh, shooting civil war against anyone's regime. We have a window. We should take advantage of the window. Uh, that's why I did the book that the way that I did. And I think, you know, that people just need to remember that they are good enough right now to take the action that if we all take together will be sufficient to stand us back up on a footing to continue to, to bear the cross and to live lives worth living. When you, when the way you describe that and the way that our mutual friend, uh, Artie and Tola talks about Bitcoin monasteries, um, you know, my, when, my impression of it is always uh, that, or I guess the first thing that comes to mind whenever I, I talk to him about it and, and when I hear what you're saying too, is that, uh, you know, we're not necessarily trying to, to save anything big picture, um, although maybe there's some ambivalence uh, in, in your thinking about that. I'm not sure, but that, you know, when I think about monasteries, I mean, I think about uh, institutions that were put together in order to uh, preserve, preserve something during a dark age. And that we can split off and form our own independent information ecosystems uh, using crypto. Um, but that doing that is not going to save America. It's not going to save the West or Christianity. It's just going to make it possible for some of us to build a lifeboat, right? Like, I'm not sure that you actually agree with that, but I'd like to hear you respond to it. Um, Ardian is of the mind that, uh, that America is Albania now. Um, you know, Curtis Yarvin has said a few things about America being Albania now too. So, you know, it's, it's funny how memes travel. Um, and what he means by that is the nation is gone. And so, you know, whether you're on the right or however you want to identify yourself, uh, continuing to appeal to the American nation is just going to result in a lot of tears and a lot of wasted time. And by the time you accept that the ruins of the nation are really the ruins of the nation, the body cannot be resuscitated, uh, it'll be too late. Um, and so during this, you know, this window, this indeterminate window of time, um, his suggestion is to give up on the nation and run for the monasteries. Uh, and so what does that mean? You know, what does he mean by Bitcoin monasteries? And well, you know, the answer is like, look, there are still a lot of people in this country who uh, are not spiraling into oblivion. Uh, but there are a lot of people who are. Um, there are a lot of people who stare uh, the digital swarm in the face and they go, you know what? I'm just not really going to going to continue the human parade. I just, I can't really see a way to do it. I, I don't want to, you know, I will not, uh, I will not date the, 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 the horny singles. I will not have the sex. I will not have the children. I will not get the dog. I will not have the job. I will not do the thing. I will tap out. I'm done. That is a mindset that is growing. And sometimes I wonder if it is growing even faster than the woke mindset. 
Uh, and sure enough, you know, I think that the woke mindset, you know, the minute that those those jolts of electricity stop coming, uh, the woke mindset is going to lead to um, to what uh, what what Ardian uh, following a um, very obscure philosopher uh, by the name of Zaff uh, called the sacrament of the last Messiah. Um, and, and the sacrament of the last Messiah for Zaff was uh, he basically, he said like, look, humans are going to continue hurting themselves and, and disenchanting themselves and committing horrors um, until finally uh, the last Messiah emerges. And the last Messiah says, you know, listen to the world around you. And what you will hear is that we must become no more. Go forth and do not multiply. Do not be fruitful. Vanish. Um, you know, I with with my '90s brain, what I hear when I hear these words is, you know, Marilyn Manson, Mechanical Animals. Uh, the I think it's the first song on on side B, uh, where you know the side B of Mechanical Animals is uh, supposed to be the work of uh, a pretend band, um, Omega and the Mechanical Animals, um, and that song is called "I Want to Disappear." Um, I think about the uh, the recurring motif in Brett Easton Ellis's books um, of uh, billboards and uh, scrawled notes um, and uh, messages left at killings, uh, a, a motto that reads "Disappear here." Uh, this stuff has been in the water for a long time, um, and now it's it's becoming the water that we're swimming in. Uh, and so, what do you, you know? Eat, let's say like it it kind of works out. Um, the good guys sort of win or end up, you know, holding the bag or whatever. Uh, what do you do? Uh, what do you do with hundreds of millions possibly of people who are so soul sick and so spiritually broken and so defeated um, and formed in such a, a self-negating way by their environment uh, that really they just want to disappear and they want humanity to disappear with it. What do you do with those people? Well, um, what you do is, is what the, the sociologist Philip Reef called soul therapy. Uh, but what does soul therapy look like in a digital age? Well, you know, it's, it's Hamlet saying uh, to a nunnery go, you know, get out of court. Something is rotten in Denmark. Go to the monastery. And what can you do in the monastery? Well, you can mine Bitcoin and you can do something very, very much akin to what the monks did in the scribal age as the collapse of the Roman Empire was spreading all around. Uh, they weren't doing what our bots do, which is record every damn thing down, no matter how profane, how matter, no matter how much it is knowledge not worth knowing or knowledge that is, in fact, hostile to us, deadly to us. Um, but recording onto the blockchain, um, what, what we need to be there in order to ensure that our machines are doing things that are good for our souls rather than destructive to our souls. So that's the Bitcoin monasteries. And, you know, look, I am not Albanian. I'm Greek. Uh, Ardian likes to make fun of me because, uh, two of my, my Greek great grandparents, uh, met in a, a field hospital during the Balkan Wars in Yanina, which is, Northern Greece up in Epirus, suspiciously close to Albania. He says, James calls himself a Greek, but he's really Albanian. Well, you know, your mileage may vary, um, but I'm an American and I'm stuck being an American. And uh, 
and I consider it to be not an option to um, to betray my people or to um, or to proceed from a bias against the fortunes of my people. Um, and you won't read it in the news, but we are still, in spite of it all, in a moment where a majority of Americans embrace their country, its technology, and Jesus Christ. Yeah, the numbers are, you know, going down or whatever, but I think still more important is the fact that, like, most Americans um, have hope, which is not delusional, in not having to sacrifice any one of those three things. America is technology and Jesus. Uh, now you look at the prevailing factions in the discourse and what you see is, you know, if that's like a three-legged stool, the, the main factions have two of the three legs. You got one faction that says, hey, like technology is awesome and America is great because America is the most technological. And so you put America and technology together and we're going to be saved. Then there's another faction that goes, no, 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 no. Uh, America actually sucks. Um, but Christianity and technology are good. Uh, so we will uh, make the Bitcoin monasteries. Uh, heresy will go away. The American nation is dead. You have to say goodbye to it. And you put Christianity and technology together and we'll be saved. Um, and then you have a group of people who say, well, you know, America's good. Uh, Christianity is good. But technology, oh, God, no, that's the devil. You know, no no child of mine is going to have an iPhone and, like, I don't even let them use the Internet. And uh, good luck. Um, I understand why people feel this way, but you need all three legs of the stool. And if one of those legs goes, then it's going to be a really, really rough time. Um, and Americans are going to be tested in a way that they are not prepared to be tested um, and for all of the tears and all of the suffering that will result, I think, uh, at the end, we'll still be left having to, 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 to reconcile ourselves, to remember who we are and to pick up the pieces and move ahead in the same way. You know, I don't, I don't think we're all going to be wiped out. Um, I think that life is, you know, suffering is inescapable and it's just a question of how much suffering and how long it goes on and how much of it is, uh, is bearing the cross and how much of it is um, is a very dark sadomasochistic um, truancy from God. Uh, so, you know, that's all kind of a roundabout way of saying that uh, I, I find, you know, I find the, the, the arty and black pills to be quite compelling theologically. Uh, and I, I have no interest in trying to refute them. You know, I mean, it's, we already all act too much like lawyers anyway. Um, competing explanations are not what's going to save us. Uh, and so, you know, while, while carrying all those sort of foreboding thoughts um, around in my soul, at the same time, you know, I, I am acting, at least for now, in a way that is intention with those thoughts. And for me, you know, that's, that's part of the cross that I think Americans have to bear. Yeah. One of the things I say pretty frequently is that faith is not believing something you think might not be true, but 
doing something, even though you think there's a chance it might be pointless. Um, one of the strong themes in the book has to do with genera- I guess, generational turnover, fatherhood, the uh, education and spiritual training of sons by fathers. You dedicated the book to your father. Your, uh, there, there's actually a really good uh, or a really interesting um, part of the book in, in one of the one of the better chapters of the book where. So I have to think back now, but I remember I remember that it culminates with um, you describing uh, being somewhere with your son, and your son is on the internet or, or using his phone or something like that. And you asked him whether uh, what he was doing was worth his time. And he, his response was dad, nothing's worth my time. And I didn't know how to take that. Um, how, what, what, what were you just tell, tell me, tell me about it. Cause I, I, I was, I was left like with a really ambivalent feeling about that passage. Like I enjoyed it for that reason, but I didn't know exactly what to make of it. Yeah, well, you know, he's he's 12 years old. Uh, he's turning 13 pretty soon. Uh, the setting was at, uh, at Grandma and Grandpa's house, my parents' house. Um, and, you know, this is a kid who, uh, who experienced um, the, uh, the digital apocalypse from a pretty early age. Uh, this is a kid who experienced the COVID apocalypse, you know, uh, all these things before puberty when, you know, you're still in a kind of, you know, just kind of waiting in some ways um, for your adult life to begin. Um, and he's very close with his grandparents, um, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, and so we were visiting and uh, on, on break, some vacation or another. Uh, and so it was a lot of just like hanging out at the house, um, you know, playing games and talking and eating snacks and, uh, you know, domestic bliss, um, something that had been hard to come by in the COVID years um, and something that, you know, is, uh, is not is something that can't be substituted for uh, with your phone. Um, Yet, nevertheless, as people do, you know, uh, everyone's kind of doing their own thing in the house for a minute. And he's laying around watching, you know, shitpost videos on TikTok. You know, if, if you think that the Internet is only going to turn your kid into like a, a gay communist or whatever, like you do not understand what really goes on online. If you're like a young guy uh in middle school or whatever, you are very clear on what your choices are. You are very clear on what the two teams are. One team is, you know, the obese, mentally ill cat person um, who changes their sexual identity, you know, in accordance with the current thing. And the other team is is Team Ernest Kalimov. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's Wokies and Chads. Um, and for that reason, you know, I think that, that some of our trad friends are not getting the complete picture. Um, they're not getting the complete picture of what's really going on. And there's no escape from having to make the judgment calls every day as a father, as a parent, as a family member, uh, where do you draw the lines? How do you, you know, teach 
the kind of discernment that your child is going to need in order to function in the world as it already is. Um, you know, if you want to train your child to renounce the world as it is and to go to the monastery and to become a priest or whatever, I'm certainly not here to stand in your way. Uh, but at the same time, you know, if we retreat headlong from the world, um, especially if we're not doing the Bitcoin monasteries, uh, the machines will take over and the, the people at the top who consider themselves to be as gods um, are going to take over and swallow up the world. And we're going to be stuck in the cabin in the woods. I don't want to be stuck in the cabin in the woods. Cabin in the woods feels like a cool idea if you think that you're going to be Heidegger or whatever. Uh, but when you are, you know, an exile and every day the noose gets a little bit tighter, not a good feeling. Anyway, so he's sort of laying around, you know, like watching videos and, um, and enjoying himself immensely and very comfortable and very at home and knowing that he was vibing with the fam. You know, like, and this is another McLuhan thing is like, yeah, content matters, but form matters way more than content. And, you know, and the content, he says that each medium, uh, each new medium turns the previous media, medium into its content. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, policing your kid's content. Yeah, that's important. But even more important is being attuned to how the kid is being formed by the medium itself, regardless of the content. And so what was going on formation-wise was an atmosphere in which vibing with the fam was put into a certain kind of harmony, however um, contingent, uh, with, um, with the form of digital technology. And so that's the context where, you know, I go, okay, like just making sure that what you're watching is worth your time. And he goes, ha ha, you know, dad, nothing's worth my time. Um, kind of a joke, kind of not. Uh, kind of a joke in that, you know, entertainment is just entertainment. Um, I find this to be very interesting. You know, when, when I was a kid, I mean, you watch something like Stranger Things, you know, entertainment used to be religion in America because the power of fantasy and the power of imagination uh, took the place of God in public and private life in many instances. Uh, I was once at a at a Borders Books uh, in the um, in the Galleria out in the the San Fernando Valley because Ray Manzarek had come to town hawking his uh, his memoir of his time in the Doors, uh, and they set him up with like a, a piano, and he would sort of like play little pieces of of Doors songs and sort of share anecdotes and talk about stuff. Um, and someone asked him a question about God and he sort of laughed and he said, we didn't need God. We had LSD. Um, and he was joking, but also not joking, you know? And so there was, there was a way in which the stakes were so high during the TV era with regard to entertainment, because it wasn't just for fun. It was a, a spiritual command that you must, what else is there to do? You know, you have to sort of become an entertainer. You have to consume and produce entertainment. That was the culture. That was Can I just throw in real quick? Um, yeah. and I don't want to throw you off your line of thought. I want you to continue it. But, you know, kind of what it brought to mind is like Primo Levi saying that after Auschwitz, no poetry is possible. Um, but the, the, the counter to that is really the United States, like the, the imagination in the United States after the war really 
flowered and exploded in a, in, a, in a really unprecedented way, at least for this country. And so maybe like the fact that the fact that that chasm was there, you know, that 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 place where no poetry is possible in the wake of the first half of the 20th century, um, the, 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 the presence of that abyss made uh, the the uh, flowering of the imagination in America, the uh, almost a religious imperative. Does that make yeah, sense? It's, it's it's amazing how fast the shoots grow back. I mean, you know, the the grass is growing at Chernobyl. Uh, Holocaust jokes have been a thing for a while now, you know. And I'm talking as a sociologist here, not not as a moralist, but like the the way that civilization grows back after catastrophe is inexorable and is oftentimes grows without regard to the sensibilities and the sensitivities of the people who are around to see it destroyed in the first place. So, you know, this is my son. This is a kid who I took to the midnight showing of, uh, of Avengers Endgame, you know, in like sort of like the coolest theater in LA. And it was, you know, he had a really good time, but this is a kid who has zero spiritual investment in his entertainment in the way that like, you know, I caught the very tail end of Star Wars and I had some of the stuff um, and I was into it, or I guess, as a kid. But, you know, it was really the boomers. It was really my parents' generation where they're like, the force is, that is what it is, you know, like, like Yoda is wise. And like, this is, you know, it's, they felt that Star Wars was disclosing true theology, something true about the cosmos. Truer than, you know, what you would find in the letters of Paul or whatever. It's based on Joseph Campbell, man. Yeah, so many, you know, so many justifications. Um, same thing with Star Wars. They really believed. Uh, and what I'm seeing in, in my son's generation is, is entertainment is taken for what it is, which is, you know, basically junk food. You know, like it tastes good. It gives you a rush. Yay, that was fun. Like a roller coaster. You get on, oh, it's crazy. And then you get off, you sort of like laugh and stumble around and then you go on with your life. Um, something with very low spiritual state, you know, like the, the, the TikToks that he's watching are TikToks where, you know, you get some like montage of like the, uh, the, the people in the dog costume being sort of walked at the, the pride parade or whatever. And then it's like, no. And then you get like a rapid succession of all this imagery of beautiful icons and paintings of Jesus and it's convert, convert. So this stuff is out there and it's, it's fascinating to see how uh, religion and Christianity are reappearing for younger Americans um, in the in the form of something that is a radical alternative to entertainment, something that entertainment cannot supplant. And like, yeah, you can supplement your life with entertainment because at the end of the day, like, what are you going to spend your spare time doing? You know, that I don't think the kids are rushing off to the monasteries, but I do think the kids are increasingly attuned to the fact that if you are looking for something to um, to prop up the world, if you are looking for something to keep us sane and healthy and Chad-like and capable of, of, of uh, a healthy laughter and a life of vitality, it's going to be religion. It's going to be true religion. It's not going to be, you know, some, some countercultural or establishmentarian fantasy. Do you think that disenchantment of uh, entertainment 
it has to do with like the direction the entertainment took or uh, just the, the effects of digital technology itself. Like I think about something like, I'm pretty sure it was McLuhan. McLuhan said something about how uh, the invention of the remote control did a lot to sort of uh, subvert and delegitimize the idea of authority in America, because before you had to, you sat there on your chair and you watched Walter Cronkite give you the news. And, you know, if you didn't really like what he was saying, it's, you know, you watch him every night and anyway, you got to get up and go flip the channel and that's kind of a hassle. And so you don't do that. Whereas now you can simply just, I don't like this. I can flip, 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 flip that it, you know, it sort of saps the authority of whatever it is that you're watching. Um, do you think that there's the digital technology has had that effect on entertainment? Or do you think it's like based on the content itself? Yeah. I mean, you know, what, what digital technology has done to reform even kinds of entertainment that seem familiar. Uh, I mean, just think about like Call of Duty, you know, superficially Call of Duty is just another video game in the same way that Dig Dug or Centipede were video games or Doom, you know, the first Doom, the game that made me ask my dad if we could get a modem, Doom 1. Um, but if you look deeper, you know, what you discover is that a lot of kids are playing against bots and they are not stressed out about that fact. Um, they're not like, they're not pushed in a, in a direction of great antipathy, but they're also not pushed in a direction of great sympathy. They're not like jealous of the bots that they play against. They're not, they don't want to imitate the bots that they play against. You know, NPC is like a, a term of mockery. You know, they're not like, oh, I wish I could be like, you know, the guy in like GTA five who keeps checking the mail. I mean, you know, like free guy that the film that came out a while back um, about the NPC who's like recoded to become like a main character. Um, you know, we watched that film and it, there, there were some really profound things in there and some stupid things in there. And it was all kind of jumbled together. And, uh, and, and in the face of that kind of, uh, messaging overload. I think what younger, you know, gamers are doing is they're going like, well, you know, this is all kind of bullshit, but, uh, but I'm, I'm doing it with like, with guys like me doing it with young guys like me, we can sort of like compete and we can show off and we can make fun of each other and, uh, and we can do it, you know, at a distance and we can do it on demand and, is it a, is it a substitute for like friends in real life? Like, no, definitely not. But when your stupid regime puts you on lockdown and your stupid regime, like doesn't protect you from being surrounded by like mentally ill freaks. And when your stupid regime, you know, what, what do you do? Where do you go? Um, and having that opportunity to just, instantly log on and be in like a cool fun space with other guys like you that becomes the selling point it becomes like a pastime you think about you know baseball i mean i had a trainer recently who said yeah you know basically you look at the numbers and you look at the dates and like america's physical fitness basically collapsed starting when professional baseball became a thing 
because instead of like doing athletics and gymnastics and stuff, like people just went to the game and baseball is not really that athletic of a sport. And yeah, there's something to that. But I also think of like, I think it was George Will who suggested that the experience of participating in the pastime of baseball was somewhat akin to like inducing the mental state that Aristotle described as the most conducive to philosophy, where you're kind of at, at active rest and you're like paying attention to something, but like not that closely. And like you're invested in it, obviously, because you're, you're there and you're there with other people who are also invested in it. But, you know, you're you kind of like, what's the score again? Like, it's not the most, the, the, the event is not the most important thing about the event. The context is more important than the content. What is implicit in that activity is more important than what is explicit in that activity. And I'm seeing similar things happen with gaming. And I think the evidence that this, you know, that I'm not just making this stuff up is where is the, the energy, the political and cultural energy on, you know, on the, the counter-establishment side and the counter, you know, the counter-woke side. It's really coming out of a bunch of guys who grew up as gamers. And they're really not wrong to say that, like, Gamergate was, like, sort of the, you know, year zero, like the founding event um, where the regime tried to go in and say, like, you cannot entertain yourself this way. You cannot have this pastime. You cannot have unsupervised hangs with people on the internet. No, no freedom of association. Uh, and we will use our speech to end your freedom of association. And that is why, you know, free speech is important. Free speech is not everything. Free speech in the absence of freedom of association is worthless. And that is what so much of the fights on the internet are about and fights about what the internet is are about and fights over how to re-Americanize the internet and how to ensure that online life is American life, regardless of the costs. Uh, and for, you know, for young guys who are gaming and who are growing up and yeah, they still game, but they're increasingly aware that like no one's riding in to save them. And in many cases, they don't have parents who are going to give them the rights of passage that they need to go from boys to men in a digital age. Uh, they're going to have to figure this stuff out on, uh, on their own and in concert in a lot of ways. And they, you know, chances are they grew up in an area where the, their neighborhood isn't full of other kids like them. Oftentimes, their neighborhood isn't even full of kids. Oftentimes, even if there are kids in the neighborhood, they don't even see them and probably haven't talked to a kid on their street in two years plus, depending on where they live. So yeah, you fall back on the internet and yeah, you fall back on gaming and yeah, you fall back on, you know, creating these online communities that are not ever going to replace the real thing. But <laughs> under the circumstances, beggars can't be choosers and you go to, you go to, to, to spiritual war with the army you have. Isn't there though, like a, a way in which I'm not saying it effectively replaces it. Um, but I think maybe like, maybe it was like Walter Benjamin who wrote about how photography damaged art by removing its context right like in the past if you wanted to go see some great work of art you had to you know, travel to its location by like sail and horseback and it would come as the culmination of this pilgrimage basically and you'd be seeing it for the first time because you know you never there's no photographs so you've never seen it before and so it was this whole experience right and you'd be seeing it in a place maybe in a, in a setting that was it was designed specifically to to highlight you know the the elements of that work that they wanted to highlight after photography, 
you've seen the piece of art a thousand times. And so art museums are just always boring. And uh, you go to contemporary art museum and you have this rush for originality just for something you've never seen before. Um, and the experiences in the real, I guess where I'm going is like the experiences in the real world um, more and more have this like Paris syndrome effect where they never live up to the expectations, right? Uh, everything tends to be underwhelming, you know, um, that the, the always availability of any, any like idealized experience means that you, you don't have that experience of anticipation and buildup and release. Like I just, I, I think for example, like, uh, you know, when I was a kid, when uh, Charlie Brown Christmas was going to come on, it was Christmas season. Like it was on Thursday night at eight o'clock and that was it. If you missed it, it wasn't, you weren't going to see it again until next year. And so it was appointment viewing and it was a thing, you know, it was an event. It's a family event. Um, and that doesn't exist anymore because now you just pull it up on Netflix or YouTube or, or, or whatever. And it, and there's an element of it. There's something there that seems like it's lost. Um, and, and that young people for all like, this, you know, some, everything you said makes sense. And I understand their decision-making process and how, just why they feel the way they do. But you, you know, you see this, at least I see this tendency among young people to find almost everything to be kind of a numb disappointment. You know, the party's never as good as the ones you see on Instagram. Sex is always messier and more emotionally complicated than pornography. Uh, and in the end, like your fried dopamine receptors require ever more intense experiences just to register, you know, at all. And just the, you know, like the real world becomes just increasingly boring, increasingly numb. And as you withdraw from it in increasingly uh, beyond your competency to, to deal with. And, um, you know, so I, like, I, yeah. So I think that like, these technologies obviously aren't an effective replacement. They, they, they don't replace what was lost. Um, but in some ways it seems to me like they are becoming a replacement. Uh, yeah, it's, it's every single day and every, you know, minute of every day in some respects, uh, we must exercise the discernment to understand and to be honest with ourselves and honest with God about um, the state of our soul with regard to our relationship um, between and among these machines and these these entities. There's no shortcut. There's no, you can't routinize it. Um, we put ourselves into this world and now we have to live with it. Um, we can't speed run it. Uh, we can't shortcut or accelerate ourselves away we can you know we can't we can't do the ted kaczynski thing um it's not like you march out into the field with the muskets and you wait for the redcoats to line up and you give them a couple pops and it's the shot heard around the world and everything changes everything isn't going to change anymore like that uh the world isn't going to be changed anymore like that um this you know, the, the cult of instantaneous change. I mean, we, we don't live in that world anymore. Um, and so there's not going to be an easy answer. It's not going to be as simple as just, oh, I'm unplugging. I'm off the grid. If everyone goes off the grid, the bad guys win or the machines win or both. Um, and if nobody goes off the grid, you know, look, one of my favorite pieces of, of Tocqueville's Democracy in America is a, a footnote 
buried at the end in an appendix. Um, and it's very short and I'll just paraphrase it. You know, he says that, that trying to march all men down a single path toward a single destination is a mortal idea and a sterile one. Uh, but, um, but guiding all men toward a single end through an infinite variety of paths is a divine idea and one that is immensely fruitful. Um, you know, we need the Bitcoin monasteries. We need the patriotic Americans. We need everyone who is, is already good enough, imperfect as they are to begin right now where they are, as they are doing what they can to remember who they are and start telling all of these machines how to live right. Um, and to have the, the penitence and the humility and the hope and the courage to look after themselves and to live right themselves as human beings uh, and to, to teach their children and to love their children and to have children. That's it. It's, it's not going to be any more complicated than that. Experts, people hawking their, you know, I mean, public intellectuals, everyone wants to, oh, it is my expertise that's going to save us. What a coincidence. Um, and, you know, and I'm putting myself at risk by saying what I'm saying in that regard. I mean, but, you know, it's not, it's not my book that's going to save America. I mean, please, it's people, it's Americans uh, doing what they know is right and daring to do what Americans used to do a lot with regard to technology just get their hands dirty, figure out as they go. Uh, you know, I mean, before the military industrial complex, before the sort of Prussian university system, it was just, you know, it was, it was Americans of, of general education and average intelligence working the problem, not solving it, not seeing life as an equation to be solved or uh, a sickness to be cured, uh, but, but proceeding through the challenges of the human condition and using their uh, initiative and their ingenuity to, uh, to make things work. Um, I think that, that the trads are making a mistake when they look at that kind of process and they go, Oh, this is the acquisitiveness at the heart of the enlightenment ideology that turned America into a, a monster consuming everything. It's not, it's not that simple. You know, I mean, when Madison writes about unleashing the acquisitive energies of the people, look, America is a large Republic. If you don't want to live in a large Republic, fine. Uh, but you can't just magically turn America from a large Republic into something else. Uh, not that people haven't tried over the, generations. And yeah, there have been several kind of refoundings in America, but you know, we're still basically the only large Republic in the world. And what that means, and you know, you can just trace this back to, to Locke or to Moscow or to Hobbes or whoever, you know, you want to go back to, uh, political science for all those guys, and they had major differences was about, uh, understanding the motion of, of living bodies in space. Hobbes said you could reduce it to the motion of, of bodies that were not alive. Aristotle goes, no, that's wrong. Um, but in a large Republic, this is coming out of Tocqueville. 
the motion of the living bodies in space has to be of a certain kind. Otherwise, the regime cannot endure. We need people to be coming out of the brooding, bitter, melancholy inwardness that is attendant upon isolated, alienated individuals in democratic ages. We need them coming out of that self-enclosure and out into the world, but we need them coming out in a way that doesn't result in the sort of Girardian uh, dilemma, you know, so there's a competition that turns into envy, envy that turns into hatred, hatred that turns into imitation, you know, and, and into everyone fighting a duel with everyone else. Um, and, and so how do you, you know, how do you, how do you make that happen? I mean, you gotta, you gotta create culture that can, uh, move and inspire people to, uh, to live truly well, um, even amongst the machines. Uh, and if you're not doing that, then you're not going to have that large republic anymore. And that means you're not going to have America anymore. And that means that we're going to have to go through a brutal, um, and violent period of time morphing into something else that will be worse for us. Uh, American civilization is a thing. Um, this isn't like, oh, well, we just had this you know, blip in, in historical time and in a couple generations, people forget America ever existed and we'll go back to principalities or we'll go back to an empire. Like it's, it's not, it's too late for that, I think. Um, things could get weird. I mean, they've gotten weird so far and they're probably gonna get weirder. Uh, but I think that uh, people underrate the Americanness of Americans and the stubborn Americanness of Americans. Uh, the, the habits, the patterns, the, the, this, the, the experience of Americanness to the depths of the soul, things are real. Um, and, and they're not just going to wash away, uh, either because someone comes along with something they say is better or because, uh, you know, we, we uh, allow the system to collapse. I always love the uh, part of Tom Wolfe's book, The Right Stuff, where he he points out that uh, when one of the astronauts who was part of the early space program, I can't remember which one it was, they were, you know, they, they were out of communication around the dark side of the moon. And when he came back around and they got back into communication, the first thing he asked was who had won one of the football games on Sunday. And he points out that, like, you know, these are people engaged in one of the great achievements of the human race in all of our history. Uh, and this was something that was pulled off by essentially from the engineers to the scientists to the test pilots to the astronauts by middle class Americans, normal, regular people who went to college on the GI Bill after the war. And that's who did that. And that that's a beautiful thing about America. You know, that the people who did that, and especially the people who got on those rides and actually went up there, didn't have Sir in front of their name. They didn't have Marquis in front of their name or anything like that. And that may not have been the case in any society in history uh, beforehand. And it may not be this, it may not be the reality in history if America hadn't come along. And that's, I think, our great strength. And I think it's probably our great hope. Um, James, you've given me about two hours of your time. I would take two more because I have, uh, 10 pages more of questions and notes here. I want to talk to you about, but we'll have to do it another time because you've got, uh, unfortunately responsibilities other than pleasing me. Um, you know, one of the, one of the lines in the book somewhere, you say that, uh, that Greeks are difficult. Greece can be difficult and not in a good way. Um, you are a, an exception to that rule. If it is a rule, the book, uh, is difficult. It, it, 
takes work. And I can t- I tell everybody I got a lot more out of it, actually, the second time. I liked it the first time. I loved it the second time I read it. Um, but the fact that it was a book that drew me in enough to want to read it twice um, should tell you something about it. Uh, the book is Human Forever, The Digital Politics of Spiritual War. And if you want it, then you're going to have to go set up a Bitcoin wallet, take some responsibility and go do it. It's available on can- Canonic. Dot xyz c-a-n-o-n-i-c dot xyz it's available literally on the blockchain which is something i had to have explained to me and that i actually finally got around to standing up my own uh bitcoin wallet and all of that stuff specifically because i wanted to read this book so i encourage everybody to go do the same thing uh james i hope we can do this again one of these days i'm sure my listeners are going to have a lot of questions for you for the next one um is there anything else you want to say well, I mean, it's been a real pleasure, and I'm always happy to come back on. Uh, I am contractually obligated to provide the following information. Uh, I am on Twitter at James Paulus. DMs are open. I do check them unless you are a super freak, in which case I will leave you unread. Um, if you care about this stuff and you want to know more, you're looking for uh, a publication that fills the uh, the void uh, when it comes to living well in the digital age, um, go to return.life. Um, Return is is that publication. It's also a, a membership organization uh, with swag and uh, exclusive events um, and a print quarterly, which will be dropping uh, next month. I'm very excited about this, uh, doing stuff that you just will not find on the market now, uh, especially if things like the MIT Technological Review or Wired uh, leave you feeling cold and, and empty. Uh, you can subscribe at subscribe.return.life. Um, and you can find uh, more political stuff on the American Mind, uh, AmericanMind.org, uh, where, uh, where uh, if you are interested in submitting, you can also just hit me up and talk about that too. Um, this has been great. I uh, appreciate the time. And uh, at the end of the day, um, I think we got this. So uh, let's go forward and hope to see you again soon.
talking to y'all. 